G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You might remember last month we were talking about what's called the Humpty Dumpty Dilemma. You know, it was an enjoyable conversation. We were asking important questions around how our communities have arrived at a place where we are so vulnerable and fragile around drugs and alcohol. We were asking why couldn't all the government ad campaigns and initiatives fix Humpty Dumpty? Now you'll remember the nursery rhyme, uh, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And we were using the old nursery rhyme to reflect on drugs and alcohol and talking about issues around how growing abuse of drugs and alcohol are destroying lives in so many families here in Australia. Now, you may have found that even within the Christian community, there is a variety of positions around drug and alcohol use. But most would agree that Christians, being salt and light, aspire to a safer and healthier place for children, for youth and for families. Well, back with us today on the front line of community educators around drugs and alcohol is Shane Varco, the CEO at Dalgano Youth Institute. It's one of 270 plus members of the World Federation Against Drugs. And Shane, always such practical and insightful comment around the issue. Shane Varco, special welcome back to 2020. Oh, thank you, Neil, for having me back again. Always appreciate it. Hey, Shane, just let's recap some of the things we were talking about with the Humpty Dumpty dilemma, because what we want to talk about today, really good practical things, especially for parents and for young people. But uh, let's come back to the Humpty Dumpty, uh, you know, sitting on the wall, having the great fall. Uh, Let's talk about that. The connection between that nursery rhyme, which no doubt you've been talking about endlessly ever since you introduced it. Uh, Just give us some insights here into the challenge of the dilemma that we have so far as drugs and alcohol uh, with children and teenagers uh, using that nursery rhyme. Yeah, look, it's a, as I said previously, it's an incredible inventory of of a lot of the issues that attending the current culture and, and particularly it affects families and the emerging generation and as you said it, it is a it's quite remarkable in its scope and I think for, I think for the biggest concern for us is that it, it, it the, it's the to, to borrow another analogy a chicken and egg thing which comes first and I think you know psychosocial fragility emotional fragility anthropological sociological fragility whatever spiritual fragility whatever term you want to use is is a very real and growing phenomena, and there are there are clear elements that contribute to that, and some are known in the uh, the psychosocial space, but others are not looked at or embraced properly because they've not looked at it from an anthropological perspective, which includes spirituality and uh, belief systems and ethics and worldviews. So I think 
we're, we're seeing a generation uh, being, particularly the last two generations, but this last one generation now, is is being uh, raised with with a deliberate excising of the anthropological importance uh, factors that 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 often contribute uh, incredibly to the formation of the, the human psyche. And I think once those things are excised from the, the marketplace, then young people have basically got a hand tied behind their back when it comes to understanding what it is to mature, to grow, to become resilient, to to embrace a, a narrative that can help them uh, sustain good mental health, good emotional health. And I think the, those those realities are really concerning. And as, and you mentioned, obviously, the, the, the Christian worldview, the, the religious world, worldview space. That is an incredible contributor to that. And the evidence around this is quite remarkable in, in the literature as well. So it's, it, it is a concern. And I'm, I'm, obviously, the alcohol and other drug issue then becomes the self-medicating mechanism that tries to alleviate the, the issues that present because of those, those other lacks. And more importantly, the angst that is generated because of that often it gets medicated by a growing perception that uh, illicit drugs and all legal drugs are somehow a legitimate means by uh, meeting the, the need, as it were, the felt need, which, of course, only adds to the burden and problem as, as it goes round and round. Okay, well, I know that you like to talk about uh, the idea of meditation before medication, and we might get to that. But let's stay with the nursery rhyme just a a few minutes longer, because I remember just how how good a conversation that was we had about Humpty Dumpty. And I remember we were asking the question, did Humpty fall or was Humpty pushed And uh, that stimulated a lot of interest with listeners. But there was another question that came to light here. And that was, how did Humpty get onto the wall in the first place? And Mm -hmm. I think that while we talk about having resilience uh, for teenagers, for children and teenagers around drugs and alcohol, this is where we're talking here in a more common sense, practical way, is how do you stop Humpty from getting on the wall? So if you've got teenagers or young people who are at risk of falling because of the drugs and alcohol issue, you've got to come back to these sorts of values uh, that are formed in the young person so that they won't actually get onto the wall in the first place. Is that a good way to think about that nursery rhyme? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's got value and a very, very good sort of uh, way, of, way of approaching it. So the argument in the secular space particularly is that, and this is a narrative that's emerged, and I think erroneously over the last probably 25, 30 years, it never used to be as strong, but certainly it's, it's a 20th century construct, is that, you know, that young, you, hear, you hear it ad nauseum. Teenagers rebel. They're going to rebel. They're just going to rebel. It's part of their, their, the development of their personality, their brain development. Now, there's, there's actually truth in that. Well, not truth in rebel, but there is, a, there is a, a design component that requires the emerging adult to identify uh, themselves as independent from their familial context, to, to find their own identity, their significance, all those kind of things. They're a part of that. But they, have, they don't find that in a vacuum. And that's the difficulty with the secular 20th century construct is that, like, there is no framework to do that in. And, and I find that fascinating because we're actually, you look at the science, and we've actually delved into this in our Humpty Dumpty Dilemma Resiliency Building uh, sessions online. We've actually gone 
dug deep into the science on this, and it, it, the evidence is clear that the the human brain, and, and not even considering the mind, which is another concept I won't go into today, it's quite complex, but the human brain is actually built for reward and exploration, but it can be hijacked by rebellion and experimentation. In other words, you've got the, the difference between building, if you like, building, using that, that, that analogy, building a wall of solid construct to, to build on or simply climbing up on a wall to experience a thrill are two different animals. And one ends badly most of the time. And we weren't designed to actually do the experimentation and rebellion. We were designed for reward and exploration. And when young people are given that framework to operate in, the, the development of them in that space is quite remarkable. And certainly there's mistakes made and issues done, but there isn't this pursuit of reckless and thrill-seeking. And certainly when substances get into that context, that hijacks the brain incredibly fast. And so fast that it, it becomes a shortcut. And it's almost like, and for the developing brain, almost like Pavlov's dog. Once the button's been pushed, the brain's got to go back for that reward because the developing brain cannot manage that well. But that's I won't go further down that space because there's a lot of data on that. Okay. I tell you, there's uh, there's so much to talk about in all of this and listeners might like to contribute. I mean, the idea of your brain being hijacked by drugs yeah. and alcohol, uh, but adding that extra dimension in there, the way we as parents... Uh, preparing the young person mm-hmm. for these things because yep. the values that we share into their lives are in fact part of the hijack process because if we get it wrong uh, then we're going to uh, enable them to uh, uh, to to uh, to do some damage there which we might have a an opportunity to prevent i wanted to keep things nice and practical today and shane sure. i sure. wonder whether if if we get if we a practical thought or two for parents who've got children or teenagers, maybe they're beginning to experiment with drugs and alcohol. Uh, give us your thoughts here about what a parent does to start uh, with uh, some ways that uh, we can protect our families here. Yeah, the pragmatics on this, uh, you know, I think we mentioned touched on a few last time, but I think the conversation is really important. And so you've got two factors here, and this is one of the most difficult things. Uh, and it comes down to parenting styles. You've got you know, the authoritarian parent who tends to be the uh, do what I say, don't do what I do kind of operator. Not always helpful. Um, I know they, they set hard boundaries and that the, the intent is good, uh, but the hard boundary without conversation, without a nuance of understanding why a boundary has been set, what are the proactive potentials of that boundary, what are the protective potentials of that boundary, if they're not clearly, uh, you know, given to the young person and, and they're given a framework to understand that, then it's just a, you shall do what I say, not what I want. And of course, they got other narratives around them that are telling them, you know, and different, of course, different parenting styles or lack of parenting styles and young people that are experimenting and doing all sorts of behaviours and seeming to get away with it. So those other narratives are in play as well. And so th- that, that's informing them. Then you've, got the, then you've got the accommodating parent who just wants to let the child do whatever they want and you know, just run with the flow, and that's because and I won't even begin to go down that path because that just creates chaos. And then you've got the the abdicating parent. These are the A's that we use. The abdicating parent who goes, "Oh, I don't know what to do. It's all too hard. I'll I'll just handball the responsibility of raising my child to a school or to a group or to a or to the pop culture, or even more tragically, just 
handball it over to the, the powers that be and the influences in the marketplace. But the, authori- uh, the authoritative parent is the one who understands the framework for development of the child. So in other words, this young person is a biological unit, yes, but they are a human unit. And they've got capacity and faculty and that has to be developed. And they, they will develop on their own poorly without good structure. And this is the beauty of, of different worldviews that are solid, where they've got good behavioural structures. So when a parent's talking, I'll get to the point of pragmatism, Neil. When a parent is talking to a, to a child, they're talking about what the family believes and why, how to defend that and why. So whether it's a religious context, you know, what does the family believe? What is the narrative that they subscribe to? Do they subscribe to that in behaviour, not just words? In other words, their actions and their words line up. Nothing worse for a we know we talk of hypocrisy being a huge disabler in the culture, and it is. You know, especially with young people, they, the cognitive dissonance that's created when a parent says, you know, don't bleep bleep swear at me, you bleep little so and so, then the kid just gets this massive, you know, uh, shock of, well, hang on a minute, you're saying one thing and doing another. So it's really important. The first step is that you model what you are sharing, and then you also teach your your children how to understand the framework, and it's, it is about there, there are questions that have to be answered. There are challenges that will come, and how to answer those. So being a parent is teaching them not just behaviours, but why those behaviours are the way they are and why they are best practice. And if you've got a good, sustainable worldview, and the Judeo-Christian worldview by all the literature seems to be one of the most remarkable and sustainable worldviews, then it is an evidence-based for using the secular context, an evidence-based reality that is wonderful and that should be actively stoned by schools, but by parents particularly, into their young people. And talk about the other worldviews that fly around, like pop culture worldviews about doing what you want and your rebellion is normal and acting out is normal. And and you can challenge those, and parents can do that quite readily. And that's why one of the reasons we did the Humpty Dumpty Dilemma Teen Training Toolkit was to help you broach some of those subjects and in a context that the, that a young person can be part of engaging in. Fabulous stuff. So that's just one. That's, and... just one. that's just one. Sorry, one, one, one thing. Yep. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour, Shane Varco, CEO at Dalgano Institute. And we're talking through what we are uh, pitching here as practical ways that as a family you can protect your children and teenagers uh, from the issues that are going on in the nation around drugs and alcohol. Uh, you can call and be part of our conversation. Our talkback line is open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. You can also respond to our Facebook post today. Are statistics and clever ad campaigns enough to protect children from the negative effects of drugs and alcohol. Uh, You can find that at facebook.com forward slash vision radio and take the opportunity to interact with other listeners to 2020 when you do go and visit that post. A couple of thoughts here, Shane, as we continue on. Stanley says no to the question, are statistics and clever ad campaigns enough? He says no, we the parents need to lead by example. Society can't and won't. My children get the example in life first from me. Much more is caught than taught. Uh, that's the sort of that it takes us on, doesn't it? From just having the conversation to actually being the living example. 
What are your thoughts for Stanley? Oh, look, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, the principle of uh, of learning, I would just, just did put together a PowerPoint for uh, a, um, a UN issue uh, uh, program that we're, we're contributing to. And, and we're going to go beyond data and statistics. So it's important to have those. But again, the 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 being caught, catching something, sorry, is really really important. So we have a difference between, and we delineate between what we call uh, data, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, information, education, and learning. The three different steps, and and information is important as we just talked about, and and so it's a, it's an alerting and becoming an awareness. But education is about informing and instructing, but learning is about adapting an application. And I think that's one of the problems with a one-dimensional component, uh, is if you just have you know, data flying around, it's not going to have the impact. It can certainly uh, alert and give some information, but it's not going to change behaviour. That's where the modelling is important. And it's interesting, just to juxtapose illicit drug use with the uh, tobacco issue, when a society chooses to create a narrative around a product, around a substance, that is protective as well as prohibitive, what it does is it informs the entire culture that this is not acceptable for a whole bunch of reasons, not about judgmental behaviours and about accusation. It's when the entire government, education and media system, as we see with tobacco and the quit campaign, there's one message, one focus and one voice. Now, when that's in play, that makes it a lot easier for the parent and the family member and the community to engage that messaging. But when you've got cognitive dissonance in the marketplace, one, one group say, oh, illicit drugs are overly bad for you, but you're probably going to use them. And, you know, weed isn't that bad and blah, 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 blah. When you've got that in place, that creates a space where the young person goes, well, I'm confused. So what is the model? And then if the, as Stan has indicated, if the parental model, the familiar model is safe, and there's, and there's love there and there's protection that, and the child and the emerging adult feel that they are connected in and this has value and it makes sense to them, then the other narratives in their peer setting and the culture won't have the impact that they can possibly have. Okay. But when you've got the culture and the family working together, it's a powerful move, which is what they've done in Iceland. We can talk about that later. So the quit campaign was very powerful because it had one message and it has worked fabulously well here in Australia. It doesn't mean that some people don't smoke, but it has worked so, so well. Hey, let's take some calls and uh, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Let's hear from Caroline in Western Australia. Caroline, welcome along. Hello, how are you? Very well, Caroline. What are your thoughts for our conversation? Um, I was just thinking, um, I saw an ad years and years and years ago and it showed it was all about marijuana and the damaging effects that it has. And the reason why the ad was being shown is to say there is hemp and there is marijuana. All marijuana is hemp, not all hemp is marijuana. And now hemp is used to make clothing, paper, it's used in so many industries. I was in the shops the other day and I was looking for... um, um, something to help with some pain management and I, I looked and I saw a shelf on the shelf it said hemp seed oil and it's just being sold in the supermarkets and mm-hmm. I thought we wear it, we ever, all those sorts of things and I went in California it's legal to smoke marijuana and do all those sorts of things and my very first thought was that is a pitcher plant, California is a fly and they've fallen in there 
it's such a slippery slope. It is all about education. It's not just about education. You've got to listen to what God has to say. He doesn't speak specifically in his word about it, but you've got to be educated yourself. You've got to slow down your thinking. You have to find out. You, you know, like the Bible says, seek, knock, inquire, find out. And I'm just thinking if... Like hemp seed oil for, is sold in the supermarkets, that's fine. I understand the science behind that and why it's okay. But then if we have children and they see that, they go, how come drugs are bad, mm-hmm. marijuana's bad, opioids are bad, heroin's bad, um, oxycodone, people get addicted to that. But how come mummy when you're sick or daddy when you're sick or grandma or auntie or uncle when they're sick, they can take it? It's all about degrees. Caroline, you're making some great points there. Let's uh, get a thought or two from Shane on what Caroline is sharing. Oh, Caroline, I couldn't agree more. I think, and if you go to, just for your own purpose, go to the Cannabis Conundrum on our Dargana website. We've been addressing this issue for six, seven years now. Now, without going into a long monologue on this, because it's quite complex, yeah, they're basically the hemp plant, and hemp is essentially... The, mar- the cannabis plant that has less than 0.3% THC, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the, the psychoactive ingredient that, which makes you high. There's lots of cannabinoids in cannabis, and there's between, depending on who you talk to, 80 and 120. There's about 400 compounds. It's a complex plant. As far as a medicinal plant, as, as medicinal properties, it's very, very limited. I can't go into it right now. This is one of the big games being played at the moment. And you're right, the cognitive dissonance in the marketplace is breathtaking. These seeds, these hemp seeds and CBD oils, are currently not regulated. And now they don't get you high, but unfortunately there is no science backing this at the moment. There's no real science. The only medications that have got TGA and FDA approval are Sativex uh, and uh, PDLX. Now, PDLX was produced by GW Pharma, specifically aimed at Dravet syndrome epilepsy, which is a really nasty form of epilepsy that children have that makes them fit awfully, and it's terrible. But this is a pharmaceutical product. As you mentioned, opioids are doing more harm than other drugs uh, because they, are, they have been exploited and they are being misused. And that's the, uh, when, you, when you misuse a prescription product, that, in fact, is the only time you can use the term overdose because you can't overdose a dose that's never been dosed in the first place. Sorry for the, the, the funny words yeah, there. Yeah. But the problem is, with it is, is cannabis is now being marketed as a panacea for ills, and the science is frightening about this. It's got very limited therapeutic capacity, regardless of celebrity endorsement. And you look at the science, which we have done and people all over the world have done, and even in WA in 2017 for Carol, this is for your purposes, when they legalised cannabis for medicine purposes without going through the proper TGA processes, they were promoting that doctors in in WA should be prescribing cannabis for certain conditions, uh, felt needs of the the clients. All doctors in WA, 2017 has changed now, all doctors said we will not prescribe this until it's been properly tested because there's too many unknowns about this. So we're seeing what's happening in California. Again, that's a basket case. America is a mess. We deal with clients in America at the moment, and the chaos is there. The black market's going through the roof. 
uh, young people are using uh, hand over fist. It is out of control. And they're trying to bring it to Australia. We're working actively to prevent that. Yes, we want medicines from all plants that are helpful. Though, as we've seen with opioids, what a chaos that can bring when it's bad, done badly. And we want to add another substance which is untested and unproven in so many areas. We want to add that to the marketplace as they get it off the shelf product. So we really are concerned about this. So yes, you have to educate yourself. That's why we set up our various websites to do that. Evidence-based, we're, we're here to... Shane, let me cut in here because we're about to go to news and uh, to thank Caroline for her call, a fabulously insightful call. Thank you so much, Caroline. Shane, before we go any further, let's take another call. Ron is on the line from Melbourne. Uh, Ron, welcome along. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Shane. Um, Neil, I wanted just to introduce... Hello. I just wanted to introduce the subject of uh, motivation into the conversation. Um, we often talk about motivation as being either carrot or stick, but that's actually a very limited understanding of motivation because motivation is actually two, two major forms. One is what's called extrinsic motivation and the other one's intrinsic. Mm-hmm. Now, extrinsic yeah. motivation is when someone imposes or someone provides a reward or a penalty and you respond to that. Um, and when you think about it, the law enforcement's all based on the idea of extrinsic motivation. If the penalties are large enough, or consequence, or alternatively, if their rewards are great enough, people will respond to that. And they do in the short term. But the most important motivation is intrinsic motivation, and that's, that's sealed on your heart. You know, that's in, inside your values. And when you've got intrinsic motivation for something, then you're able to withstand temptation and all those sort of things. So the, the conversation about carrot and stick is very narrow. Um, we need to go into understanding what intrinsic motivation is, and that's, of course, uh, building the foundation of values. Ron, uh, great insight. Uh, what are your thoughts for Ron, Shane? Well, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, I think. Uh, what they... To, to perhaps borrow and, and, and elasticise some philosophical terms, the teleological and deontological responses are uh, getting complex here. But, yeah, you're right. I think uh, the, it's like we talk to footballers and, and sports people at, in different settings that I've been in, and we talk about their behaviours and conducts during the year. For example, they, um, whilst they're training, whilst they're professional, whilst they're in season, uh, they, they work hard, they keep strong uh, regimens, they don't touch alcohol and other drugs. Uh, because for several reasons, their performance may be affected. They certainly might be caught. So there's the, I want to be better. My capacity needs to be increased to be a better sportsman. I don't want to be caught. So the stick of, uh, of retribution or, or, or a penalty for taking drugs. So those teleological realities are in play. But when the season ends, and much like some of the other the so-called uh, you know, steam blowing off enterprises, is that I have no longer those 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 factors, those motivators in play, so therefore I'll act out. And therefore, unless there's an intrinsic value, the ontological response of, I have a value system higher than my circumstance, my event, my process, that that governs the decision-making, so it's about why, not just about what if and maybe, then that, that are the factors that, that has to be at work. And of course, all, from an anthropological perspective, that's what we need to be looking at. So we need to look from top down. So what are our values? Why do we believe this behaviour is better than the other? Is it because there's a good outcome? The pragmatism of sociology, while well, the outcome was A, B and C, 
therefore I won't do that behaviour, or it was A, B and C, therefore I will, or I can manage the damage of the conduct that I engage in because society is now giving me certain outs. So if that's the only reason, then experimentation becomes, and rebellion becomes the, the order of the day. It's what can I do and how much can I get away with, as opposed to what is best practice, what is going to be the most helpful for me and for others, what is going to be build my capacity, my humanity, my agency as a human being that's going to make a difference? Or is there going to be whatever I can do to get away with? Now, unfortunately, that tends to be creeping into lots of different sectors of our society right now, and the chaos ensues because once you throw substance into that kind of ideology, you've got a real mess in play. Ron, thank you so much for your insight today. Fabulous stuff around motivations and uh, carrot and stick approaches and uh, just tremendous stuff. Thank you so much, Ron. Appreciate your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. And uh, don't be too concerned about a few big words because, interestingly, once you get below the surface of some of the simplistic ways that people talk about drugs and alcohol, you've got to engage with some of these deeper issues. And sometimes you've got to learn a bit more terminology to be able to understand just what's going on in the shaping of a society that's going on as we have it today. Uh, and uh, you, you've got to be able to be more widely read. Let me just ask you here, Shane, uh, the idea mm-hmm. of parents taking a little bit of time to read some things with substance around the sorts of issues we're talking with drugs and alcohol today is going to be uh, you know, an enlarging experience rather than just uh, hearing a, a, an odd little uh, saying or two trying to keep things simple. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think that's important. I think, obviously, you're, you're talking from a yeah, Christian worldview. You did a Christian worldview. I mean, I, I, the, when, when, as I said, I'll keep labouring this point. Uh, sustainability of a worldview is very, very important when it comes to understanding its impact. And there, there's the, the old argument that everyone has a worldview. Right? We, we all see, we see the world from a particular perspective. But worldviews aren't just descriptive. They don't just describe how you see the world. They are all prescriptive. In other words, they also tell you how you think the world should be. So everybody's got their own little internal value system that's going, oh, I see the world this way and I think it should be that way. Now, that's fine, but then you have to ask the next question. What's informing that little, that little uh, experiment you've got going on there? What's informing that? So for a worldview to be actually a sustainable worldview, it must have four components. And as Christians or Judeo-Christian uh, followers, then you have to understand origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Those are the four things that, are, that make up a sustainable worldview. So you have to be able to explain where, 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 where that worldview came from, what are its rules and regulations, what is, does it give meaning, and where does it end? So those factors are important now, as I understand from a Judeo-Christian perspective, there's certainly the Bible gives that incredible and sustainable uh, perspective, and it's been one of the most assailed and one of the most uh, scrutinised documents on the planet, and it still stands. So from an anthropological perspective, the Bible is incredibly good, but how it's engaged and employed uh, in the current context is really important as well. So it's good to read, uh, you know, good, good sociologists and good anthropologists. I can recommend a, a couple of uh, a, a good books that may help um, the Victory of Reason by Rodney Stark, who's one of the world's leading sociologists out of Berkeley. The Victory of Reason, it's a brilliant work. 
And the other one, uh, Dr. Vishal Magalwadi, who wrote the book that made your world. And he's an Indian uh, philosopher. Uh, and it's, a, it's an exceptional work as well from a hist- historical as well as anthropological perspective. Now, these two books I've known, there's dozens more that, that, are, that are really helpful to get understand the worldview that you may be Im- imbibing in is actually sustainable. And just uh, if I may, Neil, um, uh, I mentioned before about uh, Iceland and what they've done. It's fascinating to watch a secular culture like Iceland, which is ostensibly one big family, let's be honest. <laughs> That's why the model is, is, yep. is difficult to replicate in bigger issues. But Iceland, 20 years ago, had a major problem with alcohol and other drug issues with their young people, particularly alcohol. You've got to understand Iceland is a very cold and very dark place for most of the year, and boredom is a huge issue. So without going into all the intricacies of the Icelandic model, but what they did, and I want you to listen to the mechanism they put in place 20 years ago. So this is not a quick fix. But what they wanted to do is recalibrate their society. They started with, one, family unit is important. How do we keep families together and talking? So creating environments where families had to talk. Pragmatic things, this might be a little hard to swallow, but parents were required to know where their children were at all times, number one. Number two, there must be one parent in the house at all times when the child is home, when the child comes home. Three, the, child, they had, the parents have to know what they're involved in their child's schoolwork. Number four, there was a curfew for young people at certain times of the year and days so they couldn't be out without parental supervision. Now, these, are, these seem to be quite erroneous, uh, onerous kind of um, mechanisms, but this is what they did. Now, they're also, at the same time, that, that's your, your thick, but the carrot was helping families engage with their young people, parenting courses online. Uh, they gave the, the young people, um, this is the big deal, they gave them, uh, they had to be involved, encouraged them, sorry, to be involved in a musical instrument or a sporting club or a hobby group, and they gave them free, uh, basically uh, what they call leisure cards so they could engage in those, those topics or subjects free of charge. So the government paid for that. Now, all these factors, plus a few others, if you look at that from a, if you like, from a biblical perspective, then you've got engaged parenthood, solid values, clear boundaries, protective behaviours, accountability, uh, and involvement and nurturing of relationships. And what they've done is a secular, the secular group have taken that and just implemented that. And in 20 years, they have seen a plummeting of not only alcohol and other drug use, but obviously the aberrant behaviour that associates with that. Well, that so is that's amazing. Remarkable. Uh, because that is, that is staggering. Yeah. So the Iceland story, and for those looking for practical tips today, that's certainly a practical example of how you can turn around a nation. But uh, those sorts of things can work so well turning around your own family. And uh, so this is cool. it's got a micro meaning. It's also got this macro application as well. Uh, great for, uh, for looking at some of those things. So uh, knowing where your children are at all times, uh, having a parent cool. in the house, uh, parents looking out for their children's schoolwork, having a curfew in cool. place and encouraging your kids into cool. hobbies and music and even the government okay. paying for those things. Incredible stuff. Yep. Hey, let's take another call. David is on the line from Perth in WA. Hi, David. Welcome. Yes, good morning to both of you. Um, thanks for okay. bringing such a good conversation to the airwaves. Um, I've got two points today. Uh, one point with the mental health profession I've been speaking mm-hmm. with is that, um, to break it down very simply, 
there's no such thing as a drug and alcohol problem, but only a mental health problem. Because if you address the mental health problems, um, people tend not to be driven towards things of self-medication, alcohol, and acting out with drugs. If the uh, environment's there, you've got a good environment, and doing the right things for your children. So we've got mental health, um, David. What's the second point you wanted to make? Well, uh, the second point we're talking about is that there's this uh, idea of um, what, for want of a better word, uh, we might use a different word in, in our face, uh, they call the primordial brain. So um, the primordial brain tends to want to belong to a tribe. And then when you study uh, anthropology and you study um, mm-hmm. how a tribe fits together, that's basically the, the axis of our, our hardwired primordial brain. And even if you go into the um, scriptures, you have the 12 tribes of Israel and how we need to belong to a tribe and how that fits into our psyche. And that can never be broken. And that what we're trying to do is trying to um, fit the um, tribe in this society and it's not working very well because we've lost the idea of belonging to a tribe. David, and, good uh, points you're making there. Let's cut in yeah. and uh, just get a oh, thought or two yeah. from Shane. Yeah, brilliant, David. Yeah, look, and, and don't disagree with anything you've said at all, but there are two sides to that coin, and I think it's really important to understand that. What we know, and certainly the mental health issue is an important issue. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Now, is it, is it a mental health issue, a trauma, a, a social isolation, a a dysfunction of whatever kind, uh, depression, uh, more, more serious mental health issues like uh, the, the biochemical issues such as schizophrenia or bipolar, they can certainly lead to self-medication mechanisms. But what we find, and trauma is another issue, what we find is though that uptake, and this is an important distinction, I think we need to get around this, the health industry are correcting what they're saying to a certain point. But we know from the data, 7 to 12% of people take up drugs because of those issues. 44 to 77% of first initial use of a drug, with teenagers particularly, that's the biggest demographic between the ages of sort of 14 and 21, is because of uh, curiosity and a friend offered it to them. It's a social experiment for the purposes of fun, thrill-seeking. So, and then the argument is that's not a mental health issue. That's that's a values slash reward slash uh, um, ex- experimentation versus exploration issue. And you're right in that context. So we need to have better frameworks that help the young people develop. And that's where the meta-narrative comes in, a sustainable meta-narrative. And the tribal issue, which is fantastic, we also know from the data, is that we are, again, we're created, and I would argue from the biblical perspective, of the Judeo-Christian worldview, as I understand it, you have it's the only worldview where we have a community in play before time and space was in play. It's the only religion and the religious framework that has a trinity in play before time and space. Love and community were in play before creation. So it is part of the DNA of the, the, the God of the Bible to create family and community. And therefore, that's why it's hardwired into it from that, from that context. And that makes a lot of sense from a spiritual theological perspective and, of course, from an a, uh, anthropological perspective, it does as well because that creates the environment for values, for behavioural expectations and protective behaviours because it is about family, it is about community, it is about tribe. And, of course, the tribe must have a shared set of agreed-upon values. And that's the single biggest problem with an individualistic culture that denies any final authority. It says, no, what I feel and what I think and what I want matter 
and everyone else could basically nick off. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, that means you've got social isolation, you've got breakdown in relationships, mental health grows, you've got a breakdown in meta-narrative, mental health grows, mental health sorry, issue grows, and you can see what happens. There's a snowball effect. Now, this all comes back down to this fundamental issue which you've just raised, and I think we need to be careful about siloing, which is what people do. The, the criminal people silo into a crime issue, sorry, the enforcement. The mental health people silo the issue into mental health, mental health issues. The religious people silo into religious issues. What we need to do is understand that as a whole, there's, all these things are interconnected. And ultimately, we need to understand that from that big perspective. If we're going to stop Humpty Dumpty being fragile, Humpty Dumpty falling, and certainly if we're going to repair Humpty Dumpty, we need to be able to do that collectively. David, thank you so much for great insights this morning. 1-800-316-316, although we are running short of time. Hey, we are running short of time. Let's see if we can draw some loose ends together here. And uh, so far as these practical things, we started off, Shane, saying there has to be a conversation. The conversation is important. This is a parent child teenager conversation we said just how important that is Uh, we talked about different sorts of parents Uh, we've talked about a a number of different areas and I loved your illustration about the Icelandic model and uh, while it might seem like oh why are we talking about people in Iceland it's because you can point to that and say here's a model that's worked and you've got 20 years of being able to uh, identify how the changes have happened and uh, you know knowing where your children are at all the time at all times uh, making the family unit so special these sorts of things are incredibly important and uh, so if we're topping off and uh, drawing drawing some loose ends together uh, what are a final thought or two that you might have for parents who are saying well my teenager is experimenting with alcohol and with drugs now Uh, any final thoughts here well again it's a difficult one intervention is a different animal again that's another conversation but yeah certainly Further pragmatic issues. Meal time, I said it last time, i say it again. The evidence is clear. At least three to four meals together a week as a family with no devices. Very, very important. Conversation openers. Having a broader group of connected families and or uh, community groups. What they, Rodney Stark, the, uh, the author of, of um, The Victory of Reason, also co-wrote a book with Bainbridge called Religion, Deviance and Social Control, which was a textbook for most universities in the 90s. It was brilliant. And he looked at how religion impacts uh, deviant behaviour to, to the uh, in a positive way, and he and he noticed that um, parents in that context, if there's meaning, good family and a family that's caring, engaging, protective, not controlling and manipulating and dominating, but actually authority, as I said, authoritative, not authoritarian, engaging, and you've got a good community group. The kids are involved in sport. This is all the anthropological data, by the way. Kids involved in sport, but more importantly, because sport is a, has a performance indicator involved with it. In other words, we all might be want to be part of a club, but in the end of the day, if it's a sports club, it's still your your the depth of your involvement still in uh, it's still uh, what's the word I'm looking for affected by your performance. But what they found was communities of faith, young people involved and families involved in communities of faith were far more resilient, far less likely to do drugs and alcohol, and finally. The biggest one, and again, we're hitting it again, meaning. Meaning was the single biggest element to sustainability. When you have a sustainable meaning, then, as, as we've talked before about motivators, that can help me make a decision. I'm not going to engage in an agency and capacity and humanity-diminishing mechanism like alcohol and other drugs 
because it's not going to help me be the best person I can be. Or I have, if I am sick or mentally ill or, or broken or hurting, I'm not going to engage in these substances because I have another vehicle to find restoration through is in a healing community of relationships. So it's really important. Meaning, community, family, values are all intricately inter- intertwined. And that helps Humpty not climb the wall. And when he's up there, if he heads up there for some reason, help him brace himself against the push and he's unlikely to fall. Now, these are all clear evidence-based bits of data that any family and church group can involve themselves in, and they should be doing so, Neil. Well, one thing is affirmed absolutely today, and while Dalgano Institute isn't itself a Christian organisation, you've affirmed something really amazingly important today, and uh, where you've been able to identify that the Christian faith that so many of our listeners hold is absolutely sound, it's solid, it's substantial, it's a way that you can form that foundation for your family, so for your children, for your teenagers, and rightly modify Modeling those behaviours and having the conversations about these things helps to form the values in our young people that are going to give them the resilience to be able to resist the challenges that are coming and all of those messages that are coming through every form of media and especially social media today, significant things coming against our children. Hey, great getting insights. I've got two websites to mention and I know that we always like to favour one over the other but some people will say, who is this Dalgano Institute? I need to get in touch. Well, dalgarnoinstitute.org.au is the Dalgano Institute website. Uh, They also have a website called nobrainer.org.au. And so if you've got children or teenagers, you want to introduce them into some of these thoughts, nobrainer.org.au. And just quickly, Shane, people can get onto some sort of a a subscriber mailing list so that these things can appear in the inbox uh, on the social media of children. Yeah, we have. You can sign up to our newsletters, but we also have our, our Humpty Dumpty Resiliency Education Program, which is a video free of charge, video lesson that you can engage with your young people, whether you're a coach, a parent, a mentor, a counsellor. They're, they're between 10 and 20 minutes long, and they have conversation starters. They're really easy to use. They're not aimed, they're, they're not for young people to use. They're for adults to use with young people, so that's important. And secondly, for those interested in the cannabis issue, and they really need to get good data, on the Delgano Institute website, the Cannabis Conundrum. Look at those sections. The Cannabis is, cannabis is medicine. It's, it, all the data is there. The evidence is overwhelming. We've got to be very careful with this product because it is being misrepresented. But, yeah, so please, by all means, get on board. Grab your data. It's all free. We don't charge for this and use it to, to its best end. It's all free, nobrainer.org.au, and as Shane says, check out the Cannabis Conundrum at the Dalgano Institute .org.au website. Shane Varco, uh, always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. Oh, absolute pleasure, Neil, as always. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.